We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. To ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. In the summer of 1787, 55 men would gather in Philadelphia. They were tasked with fixing the government of the United States of America. Over the course of four months, they would debate, argue, refine and prepare the first document of its kind in the history of mankind, an attempt to prove that men can rule themselves by law. Over the next three years, the 13 United States would debate the ratification. This is the story of those men and of those times. It is a look at the ideas, the concepts, the debates, and the history of the Constitution of the United States. This is Constitution Thursday. As the three-fifths compromise was introduced, the debate over representation of the states in the new government intensified. The three large states, Massachusetts, Virginia and Pennsylvania, had forged an alliance with South Carolina. The other small states, led by New Jersey, introduced their own plan for the new government. Known as the New Jersey Plan, they sought to expand the powers of the current Congress, but maintain the one-state, one-vote principle. The large states continued to oppose the plan, and continued their push for proportional representation. As the Committee of the Whole moved to vote on the two plans, Alexander Hamilton stood up to speak his mind on the issues at hand. He would come to rue the day. Two days after the Committee of the Whole adopted the three-fifths resolution, they reported back to the convention. Now keep in mind that the Committee of the Whole is again exactly the same people in the same seats doing the same thing, just with a different leader. Gorham is up leading the Committee of the Whole, while General Washington will lead the actual convention. And so they shuffle the seats around and they move back into the convention two days after they adopt the three-fifths resolution, which is in essence an alliance, if you will, between the large states who want proportional uh, representation and the small states that are very leery of this. Now keep in mind, demographics have shifted since 1787. It's hard for us to think in these terms today, but at the convention, New York was a small state at least population-wise. Now, economically, a little bit more powerful than that, but from a, from a population size and therefore from a proportional representation size, New York was considered a small state and allied herself as such. In fact, New York and Connecticut made it very clear that what they wanted out of this convention was simply the Articles of Confederation maintained with all their flaws, with all their difficulties, they wanted no changes, officially, in the documentation. By the, uh, by the Committee of the Whole's discussions off the side, remember, they're all going to parties, they're all going to, uh, to dinners, they're all going to theaters uh, in the evenings, they're all staying in the same hotels, and so all these discussions are going on. 
Madison is able to divine that New York and Connecticut are going to be unreachable on this proportional representation thing. But a couple of other states, New York, Delaware, are willing to go along with it as long as there's some maintenance of an equal representation in the upper house. In other words, as long as they can get with a one vote, one, one state principle into the upper house, it's likely that Delaware and New Jersey, oddly enough, will go along with this. But overall, there seems to be uh, some real issues amongst the small states, with the exception of South Carolina, which has signed on to the deal with the Virginians. Oddly enough, the Virginians have reached the apex of their influence in the convention. It's hard for us to think of it in terms like that now, because, of course, we see the Virginians, particularly the Virginians of the early uh, Republic era, as being very involved with things. I mean, what is it, five of the first seven presidents or something like that are from Virginia. You've got the great Jefferson, you've got Madison, you've got Washington, you've got Mason. You've got all of these people who are Virginians. But the Virginians are very uncomfortable with some of the things that are going on here, even though it's their plan. This, this representation is their plan. This proportional representation is their plan. And even though it's going to take this three-fifths compromise to get that, the Virginians as a whole are very uncomfortable with this. And it's going to essentially be the last time the Virginians put forth anything of particular note or, or value in the final constitution. They have presented their plan. They have made their deal uh, via Wilson of Pennsylvania, the other large state. They've made their deal, and now they, have to, now they have to live with it. And the Virginians are very, to a man, very uncomfortable with the deal, the three-fifths deal. The reason you might think they're uncomfortable with it might harken back to some of the arguments that they've already had about the three-fifths deal. Remember that the three-fifths ratio was actually born in the Articles of Confederation. There it was born as a taxable, a, a proportional tax item. In other words, the amount of tax the state would be assessed would be three-fifths uh, on slaves. And keep in mind that in 1787, slavery was still legal in all 13 colonies. Some states had passed laws to move against it, uh, for example, Rhode Island, but regularly ignored it. There was a nascent movement, abolitionist movement, of which Benjamin Franklin was one of the leaders in, in the idea of, of manumission and getting rid of slavery. But overall, slavery was a very common thing. The problem for the Virginians is one of conscience. They, the Virginians are universally hailed in, in many ways as really the, the standard bearers for the ideas of liberty. And as we saw last week, in 1783-ish, when a slave escaped from Madison, even he had to admit that he couldn't really punish the man because all the guy was trying to do was gain the liberty that Madison himself was fighting for. He ended up selling that slave, by the way, in Pennsylvania because uh, he didn't figure he could keep him anymore. The Virginians are really rocked by this. They're really, they're really having a, a battle, emotional battle with themselves. 
over this idea that we're going to have liberty, we're, uh, justice for all. We're going to have, we're going to establish liberty for all mankind, that all men are created equal. And yet we're going to do a deal on slavery that will not only maintain it, but will kind of lead to some other problems downstream. Again, nobody wanted to talk about this. It was the issue that nobody was, was hoping would come up. And of course, it had to come up. The, the three-fifths uh, compromise had, had once upon a time been taxation. And when it was taxation, the northern states felt that the three-fifths ratio was too low. Now that it's representation, they feel that it's too high. There's no win here. Do you understand that? Except that without this constitution, without this compromise, without what eventually will become the constitution, slavery doesn't end in the North American continent. It just doesn't. At least not into the modern era. Tell me how it ends. Explain to me what, what, what compels the South to maintain, to, to do away with slavery. In point of fact, the catalyst for eventually doing away with slavery in a, in a violent manner is in fact disunion. Union is what brings slavery to an end. Disunion is what makes a, maintains it going. But the Constitution allows us to get to that point where eventually we can start to solve these social ills. And we're going to come back to slavery. We'll circle back to that later as far as the slave trade and those kinds of things go. But at this point, the Virginians are uncomfortable. And because of that, this is really the, the apex. It's really the height of, of, of what they will do and say in a lot of ways. Even George Mason, who will end up being uh, a non-signator on the Constitution, he will be uh, essentially a, 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 an anti-federalist, even he, slave owner, believes, he's the guy we talked about last week that wants health care covered in the Constitution in 1787. Even he owns slaves and is uncomfortable with his deal, but they've done it, and now they have to push on with it. The small states, as two days after they reach this compromise in the Committee of the Whole, they get ready to come back to the convention. The 15 points that Edmund Randolph has introduced as the, new, as the Virginia plan have been expanded now to 19 individual motions. The most critical of which is that we form a national government. And that if in the forming of that national government, there are a great number of flaws and concerns, particularly for the smaller states. The proportional representation idea is bad enough. I mean, that's got them really uptight at this particular point. But amongst the, uh, the smaller states, New Jersey particularly, there is grave concern because the Virginia plan calls for some things that will eventually be in the Constitution, obviously, but it calls for some things that won't be there. For example, there's no definition of the actual powers of Congress. What can Congress now do? What can this legislative body actually perform? Also now in the Virginia plan, with the, with the additional add-ons here, is the, the idea that the, the state, the national government, will be able to, quote, annul, veto state laws that it feels are incompetent, unquote. 
They use that word incompetent. And the problem is nobody's defined that. Nobody knows what that means. What exactly is an incompetent state law on a national scale? And the new Virginia plan also includes a judiciary that is beholden to the federal. So if the judiciary is deciding which laws are incompetent and which laws are not, the smaller states feel like, well, guess where we're going to come down on that? We're going to lose there. Moreover, they feel like the big states are just ganging up on them. They feel like there's this cabal almost of the large states plus South Carolina to just overrun them. Madison is very upset about this. He, he tries to argue and, and does argue that, why would you say that? We, we have nothing in common with the exception that we're large states. I mean, Massachusetts is all about fishing. Pennsylvania is all about flour and wheat. Virginia is all about tobacco. We don't have any common interests, except we just happen to be the largest states. That's all. And we think it's fair to have proportional representation. The smaller states, however, are not swayed by this. They are very concerned because, again, uh, places like New Jersey and Delaware have just been absolutely browbeaten by Pennsylvania's uh, tariffs, their tax policies, their, their port functions, and the, and the likes of that. They've just been, they've just been waylaid by these bigger states running roughshod over them in a very unfair manner. We've talked at great length about how the smaller states uh, in the Congress prevented some things. What we haven't really talked about is how the bigger states really used their power, their economic power, to dictate terms to the smaller states, which again, they weren't supposed to be doing, but things being what they were, you know, just because you're not supposed to do a thing doesn't mean you can't. And now you have this proposal for a document that says, hey, if you pass a law that the federal government doesn't like, we declare it incompetent, we can just veto that. We've had an argument already about, well, you're just trying to do away with the states. You should just, you should just do away with them. Or you should redraw the lines so that every state has the same number of people in it. And then I guess you have to craggle them, uh, like Lord Business, so that they don't move between the states because you got to keep the states uh, proportionally sized. And, and you can't add any new states until a whole lot of people have been born to populate the new state because you don't want to take anybody. What happens if one state has a higher death rate than another? What happens if a hurricane comes through and hits, say, Georgia or South Carolina and kills, I don't know, 10,000, 20,000 people? It's not, it's not impossible. What happens to representation then? Do you see, you see the potential problems here, the pitfalls? And the small states are just at their wits end. And so in that two days between the time they passed the three-fifths in the Committee of the Whole, and then they reconvene two days later as the convention on Monday. They reconvene and they are going to vote, theoretically, on the Virginia plan. But before they can do that, William Patterson of New Jersey stands up and says, mm, just a sec. I've got a competing plan. Let's, uh, let me present to you my ideas first, and then we'll talk about where we go from here. It's Constitution Thursday on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show. Here's my chance to say thank you to this where all my memories are
Last week we met New Jersey's Attorney General, representation, Representative Delegate from the state of New Jersey. His name is William Patterson, one T, not two. So if you happen to get uh, that question on a, I don't know, Trivial Pursuit game or something, keep in mind Patterson, uh, Patterson, New Jersey, the city, is only one T, not two, kind of an unusual spelling. He was born in Ireland, moved to the United States at the age of two, uh, went to Princeton University, what was then called the College of New Jersey at the age of 14, studied law, was admitted to the bar in 1768, and became uh, quite the lawyer in, uh, in, 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 the new, in the new land. He uh, was selected, as I said, to the convention, went as a representative of Pennsylvania, where he watched in horror as the amended Virginia plan appeared to be the only plan that was going to be offered. Uh, Pickney's plan, again, questionable as to whether or not he actually presented that. Uh, and, and certainly time and separation from official records have uh, clouded his memory a bit, although perhaps not as much as one uh, would think of a man of his advanced age. However, the New Jersey plan was, in fact, presented by William Patterson. The New Jersey plan came about as a response to the Virginia plan and this idea of proportional representation. New Jersey was making a pitch to hang on to the one state, one vote representation level and the principle that each state should be treated equally in the new government, which pretty much everybody by now has agreed we're going to end up with. We're either going to end up with a new government or we're going to end up with 13 new countries. I mean, that's pretty much where we're at here. Under the New Jersey plan, they would have a single legislature, Congress, just like they had now. They would maintain that. They would get one vote for one state. And they decided that they would amend the Articles of Confederation. Now, we could spend a lot of time on doing all this uh, tearing apart the New Jersey plan. But really what you need to understand about it are some basic points. Uh, the primary difference from the Virginia plans were that, well, there were two of them, I guess is the, is the way I'm trying to say this, and I'm not sure why I'm having trouble saying, hey, there's two primary differences between the Virginia plan and the New Jersey plan, it, aside from the, the structure of the, of the legislature, okay? The two primary differences are, number one, Congress will have some defined powers. In other words, none of this, hey, we think you're incompetent law, and, and so we're not going to let you have that law. None of that stuff. There's none of this vagueness that the Virginia plan currently has. In fact, Congress will now be able to raise funds via tariffs and other measures to regu regulate interstate commerce and will be in charge of commerce with other nations. Where they kind of fall down is that the cases involving us, the court cases, would still be heard by the state courts unless they were then appealed to the federal judiciary. The, another point was that Congress would have the authority to collect taxes from the states based on the free inhabitants and the three-fifths of slaves, but it would require some, uh, the consent of some proportion of the states. In other words, they, they're going to have to go along with it. Congress would then elect a federal executive consisting of multiple people who could not be reelected. One of the things Patterson most was uh, concerned about was this idea of a single executive. He felt like a single executive would become potentially tyrannical, would, would tend to concentrate power to himself and would tend to 
want to run things by himself or herself, as the case may be, and felt that with a panel executive, that was less likely to happen. Hmm, oddly prescient there, eh? The, uh, the federal judiciary would be a supreme tribunal appointed by the federal executive, which also had the authority in federal impeachment cases. They also decided, under the New Jersey plan, which they did not have uh, under, the, under the Confederation plan, Articles of Confederation, was a policy for new states and a singular policy for naturalization. And lastly, a citizen of one state can be prosecuted by the laws of another state if they committed a crime in another state. Now, these are all important elements here, and you can start to see where uh, compromise is going to come out of it because there are some things here that we are going to adopt downstream. The other big difference between the New Jersey plan and the Virginia plan came in the area of amendments. In the area of amendments, the New Jersey plan was unlike the Virginia plan. The Virginia plan had a very simple uh, amendment process. And the reason for that, as George Mason kind of reminisced, uh, was that the Constitution, his words were, the Constitution is bound to be very flawed, and so amending it should be very easy because we're going to have to fix this. And of course, remember that Mason did not sign the Constitution. In the New Jersey plan, amendments were back to being a little more difficult. They required the consent of all 13 state legislators, legislatures, and of course, whatever new states came in would have to agree to any amendment here. And in the process of this would be, uh, that would give the states the control over the growth per se of the federal government. There's some interesting ideas here. And of course, while the states will not uh, necessarily, when, when the amendment process finally uh, gets ironed out, it's going to be kind of a combination of those two things. Congress is going to have some say in it. The executive is going to have some say in it. And ultimately, the states will have some say in it. But the states are also going to be told, do it however you want. It doesn't have to be your state legislature. It can be a convention. It can be whatever. But you have to agree and you have to do it formally. You start to see where there are some very good ideas percolating amongst all the men here. Keep in mind that they are very hot. There's, there's a myth that goes around that Philadelphia was very warm that year. According to the records on, on file, it was no warmer than any other uh, normal Philadelphia summer, but that's still pretty warm. All the windows and doors are shut because of security issues. They don't want things getting out. And they've all agreed that everything here will remain basically secret. In fact, Madison's notes won't be published for, what, 50 years after uh, his death. So there's this element of protection. There's this element of we can go back and talk about things over and over again if we need to. And we've also created this environment where if anybody has a good idea, let's hear it. And rather than simply attacking each other, well, for the moment anyway, rather than simply attacking each other, we're going to hear out these ideas. And you can see in the New Jersey plan that he, that William Patterson presents, that there are some good ideas here. First and foremost amongst them is limitations or at least definitions of what it is that Congress can actually do. This will eventually become Article 1, Section 8. These are the enumerated powers of Congress. These are what it can do. And 
because there's concerned about what incompetent means among states, here's a list of what the states cannot do, when can do, so forth and so on. And you start to see how these went through this process to get to the point where we we would reach in September with the document that we're so familiar with, hanging over the heads of the Massachusetts, Massachusetts, people from Massachusetts, is Shea's Rebellion. They understand that the people are not happy. They, they're deeply concerned about those kind of things. Wilson of Pennsylvania is furious with other states, with smaller states like Delaware and New Jersey, because they keep coming up with this idea that we have to stay with the Articles of Confederation. And he literally explodes after the New Jersey plan is presented. No, we have to come up with a new form of government. And the people want us to do this. And to say that the people don't want us to do this, in his view, is insane. And so he's really anti this. In fact, he goes off on the New Jersey plan. The, the way Patterson presents this is he presents the plan and then he talks about 13 specific differences between the two plans and why the New Jersey plan is better on those 13 things. It's Wilson that stands up and rebuts all 13 of those things and say, nope, it's not better because of this. It's not better because of this. It's not better because of this. And down the list they will go. And ultimately, the two plans are presented. You have this alliance, as it were, between the three giant states, Massachusetts, Virginia, and Pennsylvania, and South Carolina, which has agreed to go along to get its three-fifths compromise. You have Connecticut and New York, which are closely tied with the fishing industries, and they are, of course, uh, not necessarily small states, but they aren't, they aren't big states either. And then you have this New Jersey-Delaware thing going on. And then you have these southern states whose economies are dependent on, on cotton and tobacco. The two plans are presented. They are made as formal motions. And the group sits down as the convention, not the Committee of the Whole. They sit down as the convention after taking a day off they're going to decide but which of these two plans they're actually going to work on. Which of these two plans should we adopt and then begin to modify? The day before, of course, is Sunday. They don't work on Sundays. They take the day off. George Washington, General Washington, do you know what he does on the Sundays? Virtually every Sunday of the convention. Do you, do you know what he does? He, he doesn't go to church, in case you were going to tell me that. He actually takes a ride out into the country and enjoys very much riding around the country of Pennsylvania there, around Philadelphia. Keep in mind that Washington is a farmer. And so he goes and visits farms. He just drops in on farms, particularly those that are uh, raising honeybees and, uh, and wine because he wants to examine their methods and see if he can learn anything. He enjoys those rides. Others, of course, do go to church. Some go to uh, great parties. There are uh, accounts of the high society of Philadelphia hosting numerous banquets throughout all of this thing. And again, through all of this is this concept that we're not going to talk about what we've been talking about. We're going to be secret about it. 
of course that's unrealistic. We, we have to assume, in fact, we, we can take from inference that the delegates amongst themselves, at least, did talk quite a bit about what was going on. They had to, because where else could they possibly have come up with the agreements that they came up with? It's clear that they met in the taverns, in the churches, in their rooms, at dinner parties, wherever, to talk about what, what they were going to do. And it's also clear that there was information getting out. In fact, one of the Philadelphia papers was complaining already about the slowness with which the men seemed to be working and how, how they didn't seem to be pushing in any way, shape, or form to move fast. In fact, Mason himself would ruminate about this. He referred to it as festina lente, which is somewhat inaccurately, but appropriately translated as hurry slowly. For those of you in the military, it's hurry up and wait. And in any case, they finally reach the point where they have two plans that are reasonably legitimate plans. One, a radical departure from what they have. The other, an improvement on what they have. Still not perfect, but an improvement on what they have that kind of addresses the actual problems that they say they, that they believe that they have. They have to pick one of these two plans to work, out, to work out the kinks on and move forward with. And as they get ready to debate, as they get ready to vote on these two plans, Alexander Hamilton, who you know well from history, he's a 32-year-old merchant class kind of guy who's, who's well known for his writing skills and his oratorical skills, and he is considered a rising star in the nation stands up to speak and it may end up being the worst moment of his life he will speak for the entire day no vote will be taken and when everything is said and done people will wonder if alexander hamilton was sent by king george it's constitution thursday on plausibly live the official podcast of the dave bowman show Alexander Hamilton is a name that you know through history. He's on the $20 bill. We're arguing right now about whether or not he should be on the $20 bill or not. But he is a, a founding father and a framer. Alexander Hamilton was, uh, through the war, he was a prolific pamphlet, pamphleteer, as they say. He became a member of George Washington's staff a very useful member of Washington staff, very helpful to General Washington, but he ached 
and longed for a field command, which he finally got at the Battle of Yorktown, the final fight of the war. He was um, successful leading his troops and his men, and by all accounts, a man who should be well-regarded as one of the founders. Hamilton's background was such that he was essentially an orphan. He was uh, referred to on numerous occasions by some fairly uh, salty language by some of the other delegates, but he was acknowledged for being a, a brilliant orator. And un unlike some of the people who spoke on behalf of the New Jersey plan who were just plodding and slow and boring, Hamilton was fiery and he was entertaining and he was, on, he, was, he was on topic all the time and he didn't stutter and he didn't have those uncomfortable pauses in your speech and those kinds of things. He was well regarded as one of, as I said, a rising star of the American political scene. There was no doubt in anyone's mind there that whatever government came out of this convention, whether it was a continuation of the Articles of Confederation, whether it was a new national government, or even whether it was the Virginia government because the states split apart, Hamilton was going to be a part of that. Actually, New York, sorry. He's not a Virginian. He's a New Yorker. The problem is that Hamilton has listened to the discussion of the Virginia plan and its expansion from 15 to 19 points. He's listened to the New Jersey plan. He's listened to Patterson and Wilson debate this, and he has had it up to here with it. He thinks that both plans are horrible, both plans are deeply flawed, and both plans are doomed to fail. And he still shows some, some political naivete in that he believes that the secrecy of the convention is sacrosanct and cannot be violated. And so he stands up before the vote is taken. Mr. President, may I speak? Acknowledged. And he begins to speak for the entire day of Monday, June 18th. He takes up the entire day. Can you imagine sitting in that room? Now, the entire day, okay, you know, three o'clock basically is when they call it the day, but, but he takes up the entire day. And as a part of his speech, he will, well, he's going to make the mistake that all political naifs make. He's going to say exactly what he thinks. And unfortunately for him, it's not going to destroy him yet, but it's going to mark him for life. And people are never going to look at Alexander Hamilton the same way as they did the day before. He thinks that democracy at all is a very poor form of government. Now, again, we, we kind of agree. We're not a pure democracy, but he thinks democracy at all is a poor idea. The voice of the people has been said to be the voice of God, he said, but it's not true, in fact. The people are turbulent and changing. They seldom judge or determine right. It's better, he said, to give power to the rich and well-born, not to the mass of people. Now, you might have thought that would shock most of the people there, most of the delegates there, but it really didn't. Many of them felt the same way. In fact, Governor Morris, who we'll meet uh, later on, is 
practically an agreement here. He, he doesn't think that poor people should be allowed to vote at all because they will just, in his words, sell their votes. So there's nothing here controversial so far. But he's not done, of course. He proceeded to attack the idea of the states. He thought that the states, as, a, as, as political entities, were completely worthless. They were useless. They were an extravagance and unnecessary for good government. In fact, he said what others had somewhat tongue-in-cheek said before. He actually said the states should be abolished in favor of a national government, and everything should be all power should reside in the national government. If it uh, eventuates into an extinction of state government, it might be useful. The states could be reduced to corporations with very limited powers, and nobody was going to agree in 1787 to the idea of doing away with 13 United States. No one was going to agree with this. Already, Hamilton has crossed a line. Now, to us today, it seems like a quaint idea. In fact, it's not an unusual idea to talk about in deep political theology circles, is it? You've probably heard it discussed at some point or another. Why even really have states? The federal government's take Ninth and Tenth Amendments have been eviscerated. The federal government's running everything anyway. Why not do it? But in 1787, this was almost true. Remember, he's talking about 13 sovereign independent governments and doing away with them in favor of a national government. Some of the people sitting in this room, by the way, are governors of those 13 states, and they're not real excited about that. He wasn't through. He came perilously close, and, and that's a, a nice phrase that David O. Stewart uses in his wonderful book, The Summer of 1787, perilously close. I, I think he went beyond perilously close to recommending that we would be better off with an American king. No good executive could be established on Republican principles, he said. The English model was the only good one. British government was the best in the world, and he was of doubt whether anything short of it would even work in America. Can you imagine saying such a thing? Can you imagine standing in front of 55 men or you know, somewhere between 39 and 55 men, depending on what day of the week it was, and say, suggesting to these men, after he himself fought in the Revolutionary War, that after all of that, what we should, after the Declaration of Independence outlines the problems with kings, Hamilton stands up in front of the convention and says, you know what we need here? We, we need a king. We, we, need, we need one guy in charge because, you know, one guy in charge can't be corrupted by other, by other countries, see? And, and so that's what we need. He proposed that the chief executive serve for his entire life. He anticipated that this would be called a monarch. He observed that monarch is an indefinite term. And then any executive would function like a monarch anyway, even if it was only for a term of four years or six years or 10 years or 12 years. And then he said the Senate, which of course was the, in many ways, the heart and soul of the Virginia plan, the senators should also serve for life. Now in your mind, you're thinking Hamilton, what are you doing? 
He was completely serious. He truly believed this. And while he would go on in the first administration of Washington as the Treasury Secretary to become uh, quite good at, at handling financial matters, the truth of the matter is he never really recovers from this day. It's always believed that Alexander Hamilton is secretly a monarchist, that he would much rather have a king than a president. He would much rather have a kingdom than a republic. And of course, you know the stories of his personal life after that. Shortly after all of this uh, service in the, in the first government, he's going to lose his son in a, in a ridiculous, stupid duel. And shortly thereafter that, he himself is going to find himself in a duel with the vice president of the United States, Andrew Burr, Aaron Burr. And of course, he's going to lose that duel. The night before it, he's going to write a defense of his decision to duel. He viewed his roles of being a father and husband, putting his creditors at risk, placing his family's welfare in jeopardy, and his moral and religious stances as reasons not to duel, but felt it impossible to avoid due to making attacks on Burr and unable to recant because of Burr's behavior in his mind before the duel. And one has to wonder, if you look at Hamilton's life, and of course there were affairs involved in all of this, and uh, gubernatorial elections, and party splits, and all sorts of things, one has to wonder how much different it would have been if he had just sat quietly on that day and never spoken his mind about putting a king in charge of America. He made the mistake of believing that the secrecy was sacrosanct, and of course it wasn't. This got out very quickly, that Alexander Hamilton wanted a king. He would try, of course, to redeem himself with this by being very pro-Federalist. He would be one of the prolific writers of the Federalist Papers. But at this point, his career is really irreparably damaged in a way that few people ever get the chance to come back from. And it's only the fact that he has that prior service in the, in the Revolutionary War that causes General Washington to really trust him on the financial matters of the nation. And he's very good at it. But always in the back of people's minds are that one Monday in June when Alexander Hamilton stood up after the presentation of the two plans and said, you know what? Both of these plans suck. What we need here is a king. And he didn't use those words, but he wanted the executive from either plan appointed for life, permanently. And he hinted that he wanted it to be hereditary as well. You can see now why Hamilton's star kind of fell. Moreover, can you imagine the shock in that room? In Independence Hall in Philadelphia after these immense plans have been produced by the Virginians and the New Jerseyans, after the compromise from South Carolina, after the big states and little states are arguing these great matters. Can you imagine the shock the day that Alexander Hamilton said, let's have a monarchy instead?
Constitution Thursday is a feature segment on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show, a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network. Copyright MMXV. All rights reserved. For more information, log on to ConstitutionThursday.com.